would say a few words about the podcast before we begin our first interview. This podcast is conceived of as a series of conversations, none of which are dedicated to final answers or decisive sorting of the questions that are being asked, but instead are attempts to get clearer or at least to bring into focus things about which we need to get clearer when we're trying to think about the questions in the philosophy of religion. I've entitled the podcast The Sound of Thinking, but I should say here at the beginning that I don't intend for the the, the the at the beginning to be inflected hard as if the claim here is to some kind of exemplary status as though this podcast is in fact what thinking sounds like. What we're doing instead is chasing the sound of thinking, trying to listen to each other so as to hear it, trying to listen to texts so as to hear it, trying to develop in ourselves an ear for the sound of thinking. Welcome to The Sound of Thinking. I'm Kelly Dean Jolly, and I'm very pleased today to have as my guest, Ed Mooney. Ed Mooney's Professor Emeritus from Syracuse University. His recent books include Living Philosophy in Kierkegaard, Melville, and Others, and Excursions with Thoreau, Philosophy, Poetry, Religion. He's also author of Lost Intimacy in American Thought, Recovering Personal Philosophy from Thoreau to Cavell. And he settled in Portland, Maine, after two years of living and teaching in Israel. Ed's joined me today to talk with me about William James, and specifically about two essays of William James, one famous essay called The Will to Believe, another that's included in the volume that has as its title, The Will to Believe, an essay called Is Life Worth Living? Before we get started, just to kind of set the tone, I thought I would read a passage from Jacques Barzon's really interesting book on James called A Stroll with William James. From the first pages, I read the following. I am not the fortunate sort of person who can feed his mind and guide his moral conduct with the aid of a single book or author. I am naturally polytheistic and fastidiously, I hope, promiscuous. When I read philosophy, or to put it more modestly, read in philosophy, whether gymnastically for muscle tone or hedonistically for the wild circus of thought, I am as likely to pick up Montaigne as Aquinas, Rousseau as Pascal, Barclay as Whitehead. What then is the difference when I go back to James? The answer is that his ideas, his words, his temperament speak to me with intimacy as well as force. Communication is direct. I do not derive benefit from him. He does me good. I find him visibly and testably right. Right in intuition, range of considerations, sequence of reasons, and fully rounded power of expression. He is for me the most inclusive mind I can listen to, the most concrete and least tampered by trifles. He is, moreover, entirely candid 
and full of gaiety, lovable through his words as he was in life to his friends. So that's Barzun's recommendation of James, I think a kind of memorable passage. So, Ed, I was going to give you a chance to get us started by perhaps reacting to Barzun, or if you would like, just by starting us thinking about what you found of interest in the essays of James that I mentioned. Okay. Well, thanks, Kelly. I'm happy to be here uh, thinking about these things with you. And I have uh, reacted uh, kind of all over the map as I was rereading this. My overall impression of James uh, would follow uh, Barzan that uh, he had a wonderfully uh, adventurous mind. I mean, he was, uh, I'll say, all over the place, except that sounds uh, like a criticism, but right. he wasn't afraid of, he wasn't afraid of, of picking any topic and just going with it. And um, th there's an energy in his writing, which I had uh, forgotten about. I was rereading some of his essays uh, uh, in preparation uh, for our discussion today. And um, he's he, he's a powerhouse. I mean, he's <laughs> he's standing in front of us talking, and you can just feel the energy in in his thinking. And um, if you want to uh, be critical of what he's saying, or or at least uh, step back a bit to assess it, um, it, it, it it's difficult because uh, he he knows how to catch you up in. Uh, whatever he's talking about in a very uh, uh, convincing way. So I, 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 I like that passage from uh, Jacques Barzon because um, uh, Barzon is, is, uh, just has a wonderful frame of mind, it seems to me. I had never read that uh, passage that you uh, read for us. And um, Barzon was characterizing William James's mind, but as I was listening, I was thinking, um, my gosh, that's kind of the way I do things too. I'm very promiscuous. I mean, <laughs> some, some people, <laughs> some, some people, get, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, we all know some, uh, philosophers or thinkers who start off on a track and, and they stay on it for years, um, and they turn over every rock that comes along the way, but but then there are, there are people that just are are um, taken up by uh, a crazy idea or a new idea, a novel idea, and and pursue it without much. Um, it wasn't like it was on their calendar, right? And I I really do think that's that's like James, and um, maybe it accounts for. Um, one of the things that I um, found myself uh, resisting in reading these these essays, uh, which is that he he gets uh, caught up in something and he gets enthusiastic about it and he just goes whole hog for that uh, idea and I found myself pulling back and saying, well wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. I, I, I like I like your uh, Barzon uh, quote. Yeah, it, uh, it's a it's a lovely passage. I think useful for anyone really in trying to 
provide, it provides a model in a way for how you might think about your relationship to thinkers who, who matter to you. And it occurred to me when thinking about talking with you about James, in part because of the featuring of the word intimacy in the passage uh, from Barzin, because I do think that's one of the things that you know, comes across in James, this feeling you have that the man himself is somehow in the room with you. Uh, he doesn't seem at a distance. And as you said, his enthusiasm itself is palpable, uh, you know, as you read, uh, and does, I think, sometimes sort of sweep you away. There's that, was it Kant who said that he, after he had read Rousseau, he was going to have to read it again and again until its beauty no longer swayed him. Um, there's something like that about James, too, I think. The first two or three times through, it's hard not to just sort of fall in line because he kind of sweeps you up and takes you over. Enthusiasm is communicable. Uh, but then, of course, at some point, you've got to kind of pull yourself back, as you said, and try to do something toward assessing all the things that are being said. Yeah, well, I, I think he's I think he's a wonderful example of um, of a thinker who gets excited about what he's doing. And uh, sometimes I think uh, people wonder why uh, philosophers do what they do. And, you know, if they're taking a class in philosophy, they may wonder, uh, you know, what's this going to mean to me? Is, is this going to be abstract? Is it going to be pie in the sky? Is it going to be technical? Uh, and there's this uh, initial skepticism, I think, because um, it, it, I, I remember once uh, uh, hitchhiking home from someplace in what would it have been? It would have been Minnesota. So I was taking a ferry uh, across uh, the lake, one of the great lakes there, Lake Huron, I guess. Or no, the Lake Superior. Eh. Anyway, no, it was Huron. Huron. Uh, and as I was looking out over the rail, um, uh, a, a guy who was uh, also on the boat said, uh, asked me what I did, and I said, well, I taught philosophy. And he paused and he said, that's kind of deep, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, I, <laughs> and I I thought, well, yeah, but, uh, um, uh you know, it, it, it's obscure. It's, it's enigmatic uh, to most people. They, they, but if you if you were listening to James, you wouldn't have that feeling at all. You'd, you'd have the feeling that uh, he was somebody committed and uh, energetically uh, digging in and and and, and uh, completely uh, at one with what he was saying. And, and he wasn't. And and I don't know whether you think he he was deep. I mean, he, he was he's magnetic. Uh, so anyway, that's that's uh, the initial uh, response to James. I, I think mm -hmm. is uh, to me is uh, very good, and it takes a while to uh, disengage and step back and say, "Well, how much of this do I want to buy?" Yeah, I think that's right. It is it is tricky, um, especially if you're the the sort of reader who you really is. Uh, well, as Barzun says, attracted by the wild circus of thought uh, that philosophy can present, uh, you can you can. What a wonderful phrase! The wild circus of thought. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful phrase. Uh, yeah, the version of that circus uh, in the pages of James. I think, yeah, one of the things that makes him also really interesting is just the 
the kind of stroboscopic nature of the prose. You know, there's moments where he's he's quite formal and sounds like a philosopher in the way that your ferryman was thinking about philosophers. Um, and then there are moments where he really doesn't sound much like a philosopher at all. Um, you know, sounds either more like his brother Henry or uh, even like a carnival barker. Um, the language becomes so earthy and so racy and so idiosyncratic uh, in places. Yeah. Well, so I thought we'd start maybe in terms of the, the details of the essays just by talking a little bit about his life worth living. Um, I like to use that essay when I teach the philosophy of religion early on, in part just to sort of situate the class in human life and human questions to remind students that you know, the kinds of things we're there and talking about aren't just things that get, so to speak, presented on a blackboard at 4 p.m. on Tuesdays. There are things that have mattered tremendously in people's lives forever. Um, and I thought that the, the essay is Life Worth Living is a kind of interesting extension of the will to believe, um, a way of carrying some of its themes through. And I just thought that you know, I was curious what what in what in that essay might have struck you, um, what uh, seemed you know memorable or correct or wrong. Well, I I, I think the, um, the the topic is is spot on. I mean, it, it's one um, we should think about, and I I I liked um, the way he set things up. Um, I think. Uh, one thing that struck me in uh, coming back to James was uh, in both of the essays that uh, uh, your students will be reading and that we're discussing here is his um, fascination with the or obsession, if you want, with the idea of, of uh, our making a hypothesis yes. about our life or um, an hypothesis about uh, the worth of of, of something, and um, I don't find myself making a lot of. Uh, I, I don't make a hypothesis here and there in the other place. I mean, maybe I make more than I know, but um, <laughs> off, <laughs> offhand, it, I, it, it's not part of my. talking about um, hypothesis and uh, William James is uh, very wedded in the two essays that uh, we've been reading. He's very wedded to the idea that uh, we make a hypothesis about something and uh, then <clears throat> wait for its confirmation or disconfirmation. And I wondered whether that really caught the uh, the flavor of of our most important thinking. And it struck me, Kelly, when you were reading uh, the titles of um, uh, some of my writing that I use the word intimacy a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think I use that word because um, I I think of uh, the thinking that that I do and the thinking that. Um, uh, writers whom I admire do as as being intimate. It's kind of uh, one on one, and and there's a um, 
turning over of the uh, of the heart, if you want, or, or a uh, an immediacy that um, you don't find when you make a hypothesis. If you make a hypothesis, the first thing you're supposed to do is to step back from your involvement and imagine a number of other scientists sitting around, and you don't begin by talking about your morning coffee or what's going on with your family. Uh, you don't talk about, you don't think about intimate things, but you, you, you think about things that, about the world with you um, subtracted from any involvement in it. Um, so the person who's making a hypothesis is kind of faceless and timeless. We don't know whether he's had his cup of coffee yet. We don't know about his kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about um, important things that I think about. And, of course, James is uh, bringing up topics that uh, we all should think about, like is life worth living? Uh, um, is there an afterlife? Um, but I don't, I don't have myself, I don't put myself in the position of uh, somebody making a hypothesis. If I, if I worry about how my son is going to uh, handle college or handle his uh, family life, I don't. Um, step back as an impartial uh, hypothesis maker. <laughs> I, I kind of dive into what his life mm-hmm. is like, and I worry, and I, I, I think of him, uh, I, I'll use the word intimately again. I think about uh, intimately about what his life is like, what my life with him is like, what the future may hold. Uh, and um, a hypothesis isn't uh, isn't part of the mix. Um, yeah. So, uh I, I think it's interesting that, uh, that that James throws himself into this context, which I guess is a strictly scientific one, where you're not supposed to ask whether the scientist uh, uh, has a distracting uh, blue shirt on or whether he remembered to uh, put cream in his coffee. You're, you're supposed to just rule all that out and just take him as a completely impartial and objective uh, mm-hmm. observer where he, he writes himself out of the scene. One of the things I want to talk about it's also, I mean, this is of course often the case with thinkers. Their, their virtues and vices are so tightly bound together. Uh, you know, he, he's a man I'm sorry, Kelly, you just um anatomy and so on. And one of the things that can make his writing really interesting is the fact that he's borrowing from so many different lexicons all at once. But it also I think at times makes things puzzling because I I think you're right. The word hypothesis is is kind of peculiar in particularly in, you know, something like is life worth living, but it's still peculiar in the world of believe as well in part because the word seems like it belongs you know, to what you might think of as the theoretical side of things, not the practical side of things. Uh, and you know, also because the word, I think, sort of situates what James is thinking about in the domain of what Marcel might have called a problem as opposed to a mystery. But I think James himself knows it's a mystery. Um, 
is, you know, at pains at times to try to bring that out. And that makes the word hypothesis seem even stranger in a way, given the, you know, sort of suspension of other terms which is caught in the essays. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think he he was probably writing at a time, I mean, uh, he he was writing at a time, uh, when um, science seemed to hold the answer. And um, it was very hard to um, turn you back on on that approach to things. Uh, And uh, yet... I think we all know that, that large hunks of our lives, large stretches of them, uh, can exist perfectly happily without much regard for science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I think James is such an interesting figure, too, because, of course, so many of the things that we think of as divided out in certain ways weren't clearly divided out for him, you know, the difference between psychology and philosophy and so on. Um you know, kind of run together in him. And that's another thing that's, I think, interesting about him, but also something uh, about which you have to be kind of cautious when you're reading him, the way those things those things work uh, together in his hands. You know, at the end of his life worth living, he comes to the term maybes. And he talks about uh, it being maybes that we're concerned with. I, in some ways, I think that strikes me as, you know, of the terms he offers, a better term than hypothesis is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um because yeah. I think there, you know, something like the intimacy you're talking about doesn't seem like it's been foreclosed on by the terminology. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, these are I mean, he certainly has a, an ear for uh a question for questions we should all ask. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. Yeah, and I think that you know, one of the things that makes say moving to the will to believe interesting is you know, he later in life he regretted he'd called the, the the essay the will to believe thought he should have called it the right to believe and i think he's right about that uh, that would have captured better what he was thinking because of course the will to believe makes it all seem much too much as if it's a matter of something voluntary uh as if he really is holding out for you know belief that's just voluntary and it's not entirely clear that that's something that makes much sense and it's not clear that he really thinks it's something that makes makes much sense. And I suppose part of the reason he gets perhaps pushed toward hypothesis is that he is, you know, in the will to believe already sort of uncomfortable with the idea that when you make a stake on one of these maybes, that the stake you make is sort of rightly called a belief in the sense that, you know, your belief that you live in Maine or your belief that you have a son would be rightly called a belief. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what do you I, think? I want, do you, yeah, go ahead. I, no, I'm just curious about the, the, the notion of belief as it functions in the world of belief. You, when we think about religious belief, you know, is, is the word belief there, you know, really, strictly speaking, univocal with the word belief as we use it in lots of other contexts when we talk about things like, you know, believing what someone's address is or something of that sort. Um, I mean, I think this is a, obviously a big and difficult question, but I'm just kind of curious how you're thinking about that and if, if James's essay brought that, brought that question to mind for you at all. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, um, 
I mean, stepping aside from uh, James for a second, I think religious belief is um, is, is a tricky uh, concept because sometimes, um, I mean, I I'm in a church choir and a, and a member of a church now, and um, the question of uh, whether there should be whether a creed should uh, be first and foremost um, comes up a lot. And if a creed is central, then um, it's something that you believe in. You you you, uh, you you repeat the creed and you say, this is my belief. But it seems to me that um, what happens uh, to me when I'm in, I have a word for it, um liturgical space <laughs> when i'm when i'm in the in the environment of of belief a lot of what's uh going on has nothing to do with belief i mean it has to do with um a kind of radiance that comes from faces that i see uh, uh as, as i look out on the congregation or it has to do with a sense of awe as i i, I look up at the the ceiling, and I don't know whether those kinds of things are, are well, I, I'm pretty sure they aren't belief, but yet they're, they're certainly part of what, if you had to have a, a, a single bucket to throw all these things in, people would say, well, well, that, that's part of religious belief, but they're, um, what are they? They're, they're, um, communications from, from, a, I, I call it, uh, well, there's, they're, they're the, it, it's the presence of something, mm-hmm. and the presence of something can strike you. Um, apart from a belief in anything, if if uh, if the presence of a flower just speaks to me as I go out and and, and see the flowers in my garden, um, that's that's something um, that is is free of any particular belief. I don't have to have the belief. That the flower is beautiful. If I ever say anything like that, uh, it would come long after my being struck by it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether uh, that isn't true for uh, the kinds of things that uh, James is after in the in these essays that that were uh, were struck by by various things like uh, like the worthiness of life, say, or the mm-hmm. uh, or the disvalue of the the problems of life. Uh, long before we have anything like a a belief one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think it is you're really hard to get into focus what we really have in mind when we think about religious belief, in part because to use you know, something you mentioned, you take even confession. Um, you know, if someone, say, repeating the Nicene Creed, confessing the Creed, it's not entirely clear to me. I mean, I'm, uh, this is obviously a difficult matter, but it's not entirely clear to me that the right way of thinking about that is, you know, as if everything they're saying is, to use J.L. Austin's phrase, constative. Um, you know, if they're just sort of making the outward and visible report of an inward and spiritual state uh, that they're in, you know, just reporting on a belief. It seems to me that, you know, if that were all confession is, it wouldn't make as much sense as it presumably does for confession to be part of like daily prayer or to come up weekly in, you know, liturgical practices or whatever. 
uh, it seems to me that there's an important sense in which religious belief is caught up in, you know, what we do, what we're, what we're willing to do. There's, it's not a mere wish or desire, but it's, you know, belief admixed with hope in some complicated way, belief admixed with reactions to beauty or, you know, awe and so on. And all that makes assessing it, I think, you know, tricky and also makes the word hypothesis seem, again, a kind of peculiar word to use for what James is really, I think, most interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I think he clearly wants us uh, to go out into the world in a certain uh, with a certain frame of mind or at least be open to uh, receptive to uh, certain things that uh, would would make us, we hope, uh, upbeat. Uh, even though sometimes downbeat, um, and, uh, I'm, and uh, as you say, I'm not sure that that's a matter of uh, of belief. Um, it's, it's a matter of uh, well, I'll go back to that word that has become a, uh, a favorite of mine. It, it's the presence of things. It's, 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 it's the presence of people. It's the presence of the sky. It's the presence of uh, of uh, I suppose of our mood. Our mood is kind of a presence to us. Almost as if it's uh, uh, something outside of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's you know, just yeah tricky to know to know what to say. There's you know this. I'm sometimes tempted when I read the world of belief to think a little bit about something like getting lost. You know, you could you can set yourself the task in a sense of getting lost, but whether it happens or not isn't up to you. You know. The the same kind of thing seems to be true about something like religious belief. Um, I think James is right that you can sort of set yourself in a certain way, adopt certain attitudes and so on, and then maybe you'll come to what we would call religious belief. Um, that doesn't make the belief itself voluntary, although there's a sense in which it's voluntary in in that you put yourself, as it were, in harm's way. You put yourself in a position where this could happen to you, as you might Put yourself in a position to get lost if you just wander out into the woods. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, an, a, another thing is that um, he, he, with a hypothesis, um, you assume that the, the world is is going to tell you one way or another whether your hypothesis is uh, is correct. But um, we don't just record the truth that uh, uh, the, the truths that we encounter. Uh, sometimes we make them. I mean, if we win a ball game or if I get an A on my test, I've made something true. Um, I, I didn't just have a hypothesis and then sit back and wait to find out what the answer was. Uh, right. So th- th- there's a sense in which we can... Uh, we can control outcomes, uh, and it isn't a, a, you know, if you were a scientist and you said, well, you, you went into the lab and you just made it true, then uh, that would be a defect. But if you, uh, if you win a ball game and, and you say, yeah, I, I made that, uh, lucky catch out in left field, uh, then that's, that's a, that's a good thing that you made something true that, that you, you, Made a win in the ball game, uh, true. Yeah, yeah, and that the ball game sort of thing is obviously something about which James is 
is much uh, at work in the will to believe essay, the, the various ways in which we can bring things about. I sometimes wish he'd, he'd thought about maybe the word realization, which seems to me to be you know, kind of interestingly amb- ambiguous in a way that would help him. You know, there's both the sense of realizing what's the case, but there's also the sense of realization in which you make something real. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the baseball player is involved in realizing the win. Um, you know, in uh, one sense while he's in playing the game, in another sense perhaps after after it's over and he's thinking about the score. But that's a word that kind of captures something of the involuntary, voluntary mix that's you know, complicates things when we're trying to think about these sorts of issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, he says uh, at one point, I just uh, wrote this down because it uh, – it intrigued me. He says, uh, no concrete test has been agreed upon for absolute truth. And um, <laughs> I guess what I was thinking there was, uh, what would it be like to have uh, a test for absolute truth? I mean, is, is absolute truth the kind of thing? I mean, I, I can think of, of uh, uh, specific truths about things you could have a a, a concrete test right. um you know when when will the water boil well okay we'll we'll find out um or uh what will the uh weather be tomorrow the concrete test i guess is to wait for tomorrow and then and then we find out but um do uh what would it mean to have a concrete test for for absolute <laughs> Truth. I mean, I don't even know yeah. what absolute truth is. That's really, that is a peculiar phrase. So here, yeah, on one side of the table, and face I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, I can think paper. Right. Yeah. The the funny thing is, I I can um, I can think of, of a lot of uh, in a. I mean, here I'd be. Uh, I I wouldn't be doing. Uh, the right thing by James because it's not what he means. But I think there are a lot of um, absolute truths that we uh, that you know I I run around with uh, every day. I mean, if I look up and see that it's uh, raining, uh, to me that's an absolute truth. Um, if I uh, get a bill in the mail for a parking ticket, uh, it's an absolute truth that I owe the city of Portland uh, so much money. Uh, so in some ways, uh, uh, absolute truth is, uh, uh, filtering into my life all the time and, uh, I don't need a concrete test, uh, for whether the absolute truth has, has, uh, uh arrived on my desk. It, it's just, uh, this, that, that phrase is. Yeah, that phrase is funny because it's as though you have to expand what concrete means to take in absolute or diminish what absolute means to take in concrete yeah. to get it to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it is a funny, a funny kind of phrase. Um, it, it reminded me, uh, Kelly, that I, I wrote this, um, this essay a while ago, uh, called Truth in the Trenches. And what I had in mind was, um, in our daily lives, it's, it's like we're in the trenches in, uh, in, in warfare, say, 
there are all sorts of, of uh, uh, you could call them tactile truths, too. I mean, I know I'm in danger. That's a truth. I know that uh, my weapon is handy. That's a truth. Uh, I, I know that uh, my rent is due um, in, in a few weeks. I, I know that's true. So I have all sorts of truths, um, which I would call in, in the trenches of life, you know, just in the day-to-day uh, maneuverings, that, that um, I can be absolutely sure of. And and yet, um, in the background, there the still hovers something, you know, pilots uh, question uh, to Jesus, what is what is truth? Uh, as if that's a legitimate question, and um, maybe maybe it isn't a legitimate mm-hmm. question. Uh, maybe the legitimate questions are these very uh, down-to-earth uh, questions, like um, did I did I remember to mail my uh, traffic ticket, the check with my uh, in payment of my traffic ticket? Uh, I mean that's a very concrete truth, and I could yeah. be uncertain about that. But but it's, uh, this kind of cosmic thing, what what is truth? I, I think if you think about it too long, it kind of disappears. It is, you're not sure exactly what's what's. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. Going on. It's, there's that what's that wonderful phrase, that wonderful line of of Austin, where he says, uh, "In vino, perhaps veritas, but in a, so, a sober symposium, verum." Right, it's like, yeah, Verum, fine. I don't know if we need Veritas. I'm not sure what the difference really is. Uh, capital yeah. V, Veritas, capital T, true. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. you know, it, it is one of the things that's interesting about James that he's, you know, spending his time not just talking to, you know, like the group he's talking to in the lecture is Life Worth Living, but, you know, he's also talking to people like, as I mentioned, Bradley. Uh, and so words like absolute, carry such a funny kind of meaning uh, for him. It's not always clear exactly what he has in mind. You know, when he says a concrete test for absolute truth, you can you can sort of almost see the sneer on Bradley's face, uh, what that would actually mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I really appreciate this, Ed. Um, I'm going to kind of bring us to a close. Any any final, final words or thoughts about uh, James before we, we finish up? Well, um, no, I, I think he's, uh, uh, I mean, if I were, uh, uh, you know, t- t- talking with your students, which I guess I am, I would say, um, you know, step back and uh, think about what he says, because uh, there's a lot of important stuff there, but at, at the same time, um, he uh, frames his questions in ways that uh, we can certainly uh uh, wonder about, which is what we what we have been doing here. Yeah. I, at at the last moment, I uh, as I was waiting for our call to get going, um, I was I was reminded me of some of something that I think Thomas Kuhn uh, refers to when uh, when he's talking about scientific revolutions. And, of course, when you have a revolution in science, if you go from Newtonian physics to Einstein's view, um, you have a change in in worldview. And I suppose you'd say, uh, uh, if you were in, if you were William James, you'd, you'd say that uh, the old hypotheses, 
drop out and we have uh and we make new ones in other words when we try and figure out how to test einstein's view we'd make hypotheses that, that wouldn't make any sense if we were trying to test newton's views um but i think somewhere in thomas kuhn's book about revolution in science he says um that the immediate effect of einstein's view was uh to convince young scientists but the old ones who had spent all their life um believing in newton uh weren't convinced <laughs> they just died off and that always uh I, i thought that was interesting because we always think of science as coming up with uh clear answers that are going to convince everybody but apparently that wasn't true in in uh, in einstein's case but so mm-hmm. we'll just uh I'll just leave with that kind of enigma. All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, thank, and, you. Uh, thank you, Kelly. It's, it's been fun. Yeah, and yeah. if we get a chance, maybe somewhere down the line, we'll get back together and we'll talk a little bit about uh, Thoreau and uh, Henry Bugby. Oh, love to, love to. I'd like to thank Ed Mooney for dropping in to talk with me about William James. There'll be more on James in later episodes of the podcast, but I thought I would finish this particular episode by reading a bit of James, uh, the closing paragraph of the paragraphs of Is Life Worth Living? Once more, it is a case of maybe. And once more, maybes are the essence of the situation. I confess that I do not see why the very existence of an invisible world may not in part depend on the personal response which any one of us may make to the religious appeal. God himself, in short, may draw vital strength and increase of very being from our fidelity. For my own part, I do not know what the sweat and blood and tragedy of this life mean, if they mean anything short of this. If this life be not a real fight, in which something is eternally gained for the universe by success, it is no better than a game of private theatricals from which one may withdraw at will. But it feels like a real fight, as if there were something really wild in the universe, which we, with all our idealities and faithfulnesses, are needed to redeem, and first of all, to redeem our own hearts from atheisms and fears. For such a half-wild, half-saved universe, our nature is adapted. The deepest thing in our nature is this Binnenleben, as a German doctor lately has called it, this dumb region of the heart in which we dwell alone with our willingnesses and unwillingnesses, our faiths and fears. As through the cracks and crannies of caverns, those waters exude from the earth's bosom, which then form the fountainheads of springs, so in these crepuscular depths of personality, the sources of all our outer deeds and decisions take their rise. Here is our deepest organ of communication with the nature of things, 
and compared with these concrete movements of our soul, all abstract statements and scientific arguments, the veto, for example, which the strict positivist pronounces upon our faith, sound to us like mere chatterings of the teeth. For here possibilities, not finished facts, are the realities with which we have actively to deal. That's James from the close of Is Life Worth Living? As I mentioned talking to Ed, I start my philosophy of religion class with this essay as a way of trying to provide what I take to be the right sort of environment in which to be thinking about these questions. I have to admit that starting this fall with philosophy of religion and starting with is life worth living seems peculiar in this time of pandemocalypse. I hope everyone out there is well, staying safe, wash your hands, read some James, and listen for the sound of thinking. We'll talk next time.